Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. Oh, come in here now, my buddy, buddy. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and welcome to the True Tunes Podcast. There are few artists who have had the kind of impact on my life that Buddy Miller has had. He's an award-winning producer, songwriter, and artist who, along with his wife Julie, is considered by many to be the heartbeat, or maybe even the conscience, of modern Americana music. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that in Nashville, especially among musicians, Buddy Miller is almost considered royalty. And on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, I get to take you into Buddy's home studio, Dogtown, for a chat about his earliest experiences with music, how he learned to listen so deeply, to develop big ears, as he calls it, and how he approaches the art and craft of bending strings today. I won't have to chop no wood. I can be better, I can be good. I can be any way that I feel one of these days. I might be a man dressed in black, a hobo by the railroad track. I'll be gone like the wayward wind one of these days. I know many of you are already well aware of Buddy's resume. But as I sincerely hope we have a good number of college students and younger listeners with us, I want to just skim over some highlights for you before we get started. Buddy Miller has been nominated for four Grammy Awards and has won one as a producer of Patty Griffin's Downtown Church album. He's released about a dozen albums, depending on how you count, either as a solo artist or in collaboration with his wife Julie or other artists. He's been a touring guitarist for Steve Earle, Patty Griffin, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, Gillian Welch and David Rawlings, and Jim Lauderdale. He gained wide notice for his long stint with Amylou Harris, and I heard a rumor that Bob Dylan himself was hot on his trail to get Buddy to join his band, but thus far has not snagged him. He was the music supervisor for the TV show Nashville and has produced albums for not only himself and Julie, but also Richard Thompson, Sean Colvin, the McCrary Sisters, The War and Treaty, The Carolina Chocolate Drops, Ralph Stanley, Solomon Burke, Allison Moore, The Wood Brothers, and one of my all-time favorites, The Vigilantes of Love. His songs have been covered by the Dixie Chicks, Levon Helm, Emmylou, Leanne Walmack, Griffin, Dirks Bentley, Patty Loveless, Brooks and Dunn, and many others. Buddy, who exudes musical grit, authenticity, and yes, 
Swang has defined success on his own terms, but always in the service of others. So, while I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily starstruck when I'm around Buddy, I am still in awe. Not just at his talent, but at how well he has invested that talent. Well, I believe in my soul and I'm going Later on the jukebox, we'll take a deep dive into his solo music and some of his collaborations. Like I mentioned, I visited Buddy at his home studio, making sure to maintain a safe distance. I got some great photos of the space, which I encourage you to check out on the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com. But with no further ado, walk with me now into Buddy's Temple of Soul, Dogtown Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. What was it that captivated you about music and kind of started you on the path uh, of saying, this is going to be my life, like I want to give myself over to this and and make music my life? Two things I remember. I think the two earliest memories are actually the records themselves. Hmm. Um, at my, grand, my grandfather's house, where he just had 78s, and holding the records and putting them on the record player and listening to them. And of course, I was drawn to the music. Um, Elvis Presley's first appearance on TV that uh, my parents actually had me watch. I don't know, I don't think they were really into Elvis, but it was just an event. I watched it with them and that did make an impression on me. I couldn't tell you what song it was or I'm sure I've seen the footage over and over again, you know, in the past every year almost just watching stuff on YouTube. Those memories kind of cement the original memory and probably shifted a little bit. Yeah, oh gosh, yeah. yeah. But that, that drew me in. And then music was, you know, it was all consuming, um, everything about it, just the sound. And I got drawn to folk music at a pretty young age. There was That was around me when I was probably eight to nine to 10. And at the same time, that drew me towards blues. And I just had, you know, big ears, I just loved everything i listened to everything but folk music and dylan's second record um i think when i was like 11 years old or 12 there were guitar not teachers but you know you get the best you could for a teacher in the area and um there's a lady like three doors down from us that would show me stuff and she was kind of in the carter family style uh, guitar playing 
And after she went as, as far as she thought she could with me, she said, you know, I have a friend that I think you'd benefit from hanging around. And she called her up and her name was Marge Seeger. She was married to Mike Seeger from the New Lost City Ramblers, who was just an incredible musical force. Uh, I think he was half-brother Pete Seeger. And he played, if you look him up on YouTube, which is well worth looking up, he is a master at anything he, he, he touches um, from the auto harp. I actually played on uh, the first Raising Sand, Robert Plant, Allison Krauss record. He was playing the auto harp. I had to learn his, his part when I played guitar and, and different instruments in that touring band. But um, anyway, his wife kind of took me under her wing. I had to get lessons from her. I guess lessons, but there'd be more guidance. You know, I'd take her up into my room um, and show her my show, my record collection I was so proud of, and she'd see things and go, oh, that's good, and that's good, but listen to this. And if, you know, a blues guy, an old, I forget who, would come to town, um, she would, you know, often invite me, say, you want to go with us and hear um, Big Bill Brunzi or whoever it was wow. play. Um, just a very kind, um, very smart, and really good musician. I can still hear her playing wow. um, in my head now. So she, you know, led me towards some really good stuff. At the same time, Hendrix was about to happen and did happen when I was out with her and not everybody gets everything. And I was, you know, I saw Hendrix a few times. I was drawn to that too. You know, hearing Purple Haze on the radio the first time when you hear that interval played over an AM radio in real time, you know, it's new. You never heard anything like that before. Um, that's a moment you remember. So you're 10 or 11 years old and you've got a mentor that's actually with you kind of pointing out some guideposts yeah, and saying, every, listen and focus. Probably every week is what I guess we probably, wow. I would, you know, learn things from her. And she, at, at that time, though, she was very kindly would go, this is something you should listen to. This is this Dylan record. Um, you know, she when she saw that I liked that, she, that, that's good. So now listen to this. Right. And now listen to that. And she was, you know, she also listened to everything. She wasn't just... The new Lost City Ramblers were like a, they were drawing attention to an art form that was sort of buried and, and forgotten. Old, old time um, mountain music and traditional music. But I think she certainly listened to everything. And I'm sure Mike Seeger did too. So how was the transition for you as a fan into you as a player? What, what was, well, how I just was that kept going? listening and, and listening to everything. You know, I, I think it was an amazing thing to to grow up, growing up with, you know, all of this music, the change from Elvis to the Beatles and what was happening with the blues, all this happening on the radio in real time. You'd hear the Beatles for the first time, hear Jimi Hendrix a few years later for the first time, and every new record that would come out and how they would advance, the Beatles would kind of change and advance and their ears were you know they're so influenced by country music for instance that gets overlooked a lot so i just took everything in and getting into country music was a real natural progression for me pedal steel i think i got into probably because of jerry garcia i was really into the grateful dead i still am into the grateful dead i yeah. think that's one of the places where everything collides uh, the music and the lyrics or collective consciousness uh, they could put the, those those uh, lyrics to the to that music I mean sometimes it's the most horrible sound there is I'll, I'll turn on the Grateful Dead channel on and when I'm driving around and 
once in a while it's just unlistenable. My wife can't listen to it at all. But when it works, it's on a whole different plane from everything else. It's when it all, that's what music's about. Reach out your hand If your cup be empty If your cup is full May it be again Let it be known There is a fountain That was not made I saw you playing uh, at that Grateful Dead Jerry Garcia 77th birthday jam a couple years ago or last in year. In the big East one Nashville. in, in, uh, in the outside D.C.? No, this is just here in East Nashville. Oh, oh uh, in East Nashville, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, even in the context of a Grateful Dead jam, you were able to dial in songs that still pulled right at a very spiritual line, like it revealed the thread that goes back through all of your music and how your music comes organically out of all of that music. And that, and that's part of what pulled me so much in when we had breakfast all those years ago mm-hmm. saying, okay, kid, when you say you don't like country music, you know, tell me what it is about it. And I said that line about, well, I like, I like old country. I like Johnny Cash. I like Bob Dylan. I just don't like the twangy stuff. And you were like, well, maybe it's, Maybe it's not the twang that you don't like, it's the absence of twang. <laughs> and, and then you told me about that authentic American sound of the tension and the high lonesome and the blues. And, and But it turns out that was actually what was missing. And you mm-hmm. became that mentor for me and gave me a few things to listen to and gave me a new vernacular and kind of set me on a path. And even as an artist, because I think we had done it, you'd heard a few of our songs. Yeah. And you said, I hear that kind of in what you're doing, but you're restraining it. Like, you just need to let it go. And and if it's not cool, who cares? If that's what you and Michelle are doing, then you just need to do it. And this was before alt-country and Americana was a thing, but you've become such a curator of music because like you keep saying, big ears. You've heard so much stuff. You're listening at a deeper level. It's it's the sound and the tone, but it's also the lyrics. So tell me, like, when did you start to notice there's good music and there's great music? What, when did that level kick in for you? That is something because you know, uh, quite often you have to listen past the performance right. and to hear the song and to hear the heart of the song and to get to what it is. And with the Grateful Dead, sometimes people can't hear past the vocals, right. and which can be you know a really a difficult listen sometimes dylan and, is the same way yeah well well D- dylan for me never was it was a problem i yeah. still think he's just one of the best singers I that ever him. was and he's like a deep blues singer he yeah dylan for me wasn't a pro- it wasn't an issue but i know for a lot of people right. he is still and uh but the dead but the dead that's you know that's an acquired taste um but when you listen or just read the lyrics robert hunter who was the uh the lyricist and a member of the Grateful Dead, but didn't tour with them, but wrote the lyrics and, and some of the music too, is just on a whole other level. Those songs, um, well, Deal certainly was early 70s from Garcia's first solo record. Right. And uh, Black Muddy River um, was later on, but yeah, you just look through his lyrics. And I've heard that the, the, the music that you like is, and the, the music that you think is the best and the only relevant music that you, not you, but, you know, a person thinks is the music they grew up with. The music right. from like when they're 
15 to 22 or something like that. Exactly. That's the right. only music they think is is the best. And that may be true, but I think something when I was that age, something special was happening in the world. You know, one week I would go to a bluegrass festival or, or folk festival. And then next week, because I live close to the Fillmore, I'd go to the Fillmore all the time. A friend of mine who was older was a sound man. So this is Fillmore East. Yeah, Fillmore East. So right. he'd, I'd go and I'd sometimes sit up there and listen in the sound booth or I'd be down. He'd get me, you know, I'd send him my money. And the tickets for the Fillmore were like three, four, and five dollars. <laughs> to see shows with three, usually three acts, you know, the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead. I remember seeing that two shows in a row. And there's so, so many great acts. I saw the Staple Singers opening up for Janis Joplin and Big Brother wow. and the Holding Company. But the Grateful Dead was different from anybody else. It was always, you know, a bunch of hippies at, at the Fillmore, but there was a family and there was like a collective consciousness and an understanding between everybody that we were sort of family and experiencing something very special it was kind of like church yeah, in a way right um and when the music worked with those lyrics and the guitars and the, the whole mess on stage coming together it went you know it, like at the highest art form of uh, that there could be musically as for you know at the high points of jazz and uh it, it was equal to that or just the most beautiful song um but it's the for me it's it's the, where the spiritual and emotional and more than the head for me i'm not that interested in the in the the smartness of things although dylan did draw me in i will walk alone by the black muddy river and sing me a song of my own There's an instinctive level you can get to when you're familiar enough with something. It's like muscle memory. Once you've developed a skill, you don't have to think about what you're doing. You just do it. Like you, you know how to play those notes. You don't have to think, where's my hand going? You just, it goes there and it does what your heart wants it to do. I would suggest that it might not have seemed like it, but those years with the mentor showing you that stuff, that was the learning part. That was the thinking part. And then it just kind of settles into your heart and your gut and it becomes instinctive. And now when someone says, hey, buddy, I, I need you to be the music supervisor on this film or this, I need you to curate songs for this special tribute concert. It's more a gut thing for you probably than than a brain thing because you've done all of that brain stuff. It's, it's in your I guess, but muscle memory, you're right. I mean, because playing, because I got out of that that scene as soon as I could. Just I was playing in bands while, I, you know, as a as a young teenager. And just as soon as I could play in a bar, I was playing in bars seven nights a week. So it's playing every night of the week and then playing all during the day to the point where, yeah, it is muscle memory. But you don't want that to become rote. Exactly. It's e right. Which is easy to have happen. Go through the, you know, just be going through the motions in a, in a show. Yeah. at all you want it to be fresh i want to you know i want to be challenged by guys i play with i always tell you know my drummer if i get lost because i like getting lost in a song i like to jam a little bit i like the song structure and i play songs i don't you know jam but if i get lost i'm happy about it don't tell me where the one is i don't want to know i just want to get be happy in the out there and right. we'll find our way back
what was your your spiritual journey like overlaid atop that musical journey you kind of had a, a parallel sort of spiritual path of discovery and did, did that sort of speak into your musical discoveries or were they talking to each other i don't know i at that point as a young teenager i'm jewish i grew up without you know real deep i certainly believed in god and believed that there was something much more um out there but i wasn't really i didn't spend much time thinking about it i was just having fun but later on when julie uh became a christian and her, her whole life she shared some of that with me and it started resonating with me and i never really read the bible and when i did just certain truths would pop out and also certain passages that i'd heard before or heard references or heard you know changed up in a song would come out and yeah. that and just i think when god speaking to your heart that way or through us you know so it also starts talking to you through songs through music through art through anything around you and it just changed my perspective on the world not so much on music some are pushing hard some are holding back you know it's a shame the way some people act the president says we shall overcome kind of spent some time away from doing that music though before you found your way back to it yeah i did and um <laughs> you know when i gave my life to the lord i um, julie was in a what we sort of loosely call a ministry it was in lindale texas there yeah. were several of them there everybody was there with really pure and sincere hearts pretty much except for maybe a few but it, we were all there for the you know everybody that got in there was there for the right reason and there were many ministries in Glendale, Texas from Keith Green's yeah. last days and David Wilkerson was across the street and YWAM and all of this good thing stuff he didn't know you were on. there what's that <laughs> a good thing Wilkerson didn't know you were oh, there. oh no he would come over actually David Wilkerson oh, really? bought me a pair of sneakers um because I came into this this um, ministry thing they they did a lot of music so children's music so I, um, when they heard that I was actually a musician um, and not somebody that they'd have, you know, have to teach right. um, more than, you know, to teach how to play the fourth chord. Right. <laughs> uh, they were thrilled and that I'd actually been in a recording studio before. And so right. I got to work on production for some of the children's records. And I, you know, I was always into recording. I think I moved there with a a four-track recorder. I think that was all that was available at the time. Um, mm -hmm. Or TAC 3340 reel-to-reel four-track that I got when I was probably 15 or 16. So uh, we would do demos, you know, our, our own little kid song demos, and I got into that. And uh, there was so much good. That time was really good for reevaluating everything that I thought was really important in my life and seeing the things that were and thinking about god and the world and the people around around you and actually started writing around that time and julie started writing too around that time but i'd stopped playing bars which was what i was you know i think i the last gig i played was was with kinky friedman and the texas jew boys up in the, oh the lone star cafe in wow. uh, new york city and then drove down to texas don't go away 
The Chew Tunes podcast will be back shortly. We're back with the Chew Tunes podcast. We're going to step away from the conversation for just a few minutes and fire up the jukebox. Since we did a deep dive into Buddy and Julie Miller's three albums just a few episodes ago, we're going to take a look at Buddy's solo work and some of the other collaborations he's done. Let me jam this old Fender medium guitar pick into the slot and see if I can get this thing to work. You wrecked up my heart with your careless love. never forget when Buddy was telling me about his debut solo album, Your Love and Other Lies. It hadn't come out yet, and he offered to send me a pre-release copy. I don't know if you're going to like it, he had said. It's pretty twangy. And I'll tell you what, Your Love and Other Lies, from the production to the performance to the song selection, was timeless, honest, and true. Sure, it was more country than alt. It sounded as if it had come out of the late 60s or early 70s and had been recorded in a honky-tonk. You're running wild. Miller followed it up in 1997 with Poison Love, a record that had a bit more jangle but a slightly darker tone. The title was a country standard that had been recorded by Bill Monroe, Hank Snow, Webb Pierce, Chet Atkins, and T-Bone Burnett. Oh, your poison love stained the lifeblood in my heart so dear And I know my life will never be the same All my pleadings have all been in vain for you and you The album also featured 100 Million Little Bombs, a Julian Buddy composition about the proliferation of landmines. From the beginning, it was clear that Buddy saw the thread that connected the old songs, universal truths, and the human condition with contemporary issues, and he was not afraid to make bold statements when his head and his heart called him to. Poison Love leaned more on Buddy's acoustic guitar, though it was far from being what one would call an acoustic record. The production was more modern than his debut, and it helped to move Buddy more into the bullseye of the emerging Americana alt-country scene. There's a place where love grows wild Where hearts can trust just like a child A wild thing it don't need a lot it just goes on what it's got 
it still grows no matter what. But 1999's Cruel Moon was where the planets aligned. The album opens with a howler. Does my ring burn your finger gives us Buddy's now nearly trademarked tremolo-soaked electric guitar tone and a vocal that sounds like it was mic'd in a bathroom. It's a slow burner that builds steam steadily until it sounds and feels like every meter is pegged. When I gave you my heart, it was not what you wanted. Now the walls say your name and the pictures are haunted. Does my ring burn your finger? Did my love weigh you down? Was a promise too much to keep around? I remember your words And I can't keep from crying It's followed by the playful and raucous love match, another duet with Steve Earle. Even when the songs slow down and the mics are brought in close, like on Sometimes I Cry, the intimacy is as intense as the amp heat on those other barn burners. Sometimes I cry Sometimes I cry I stop holding up And my heart gets stuck And that might take a while Sometimes I cry Sometimes I cry Sometimes I just break down Every song on Cruel Moon is a winner. It's got humor, heartache, and gut punches, often all at once. This is the kind of album that can define a genre, and for many, it did. That's the price of After taking a couple of years to focus on the first Buddy and Julie album and some other live and production work, Buddy returned in 2002 with Midnight and Lonesome, another set that is so strong from start to finish it made many of us wonder why Buddy released solo records so infrequently.
One of my favorite tracks, and a bit of a left turn on the set, is a salty little tune he wrote to a rhythm track that came from an Optagon. It's an electronic instrument that used floppy disks and was sold by Mattel. When It Comes to You should have been a major hit on AAA radio. Another highlight is Water When the Well is Dry, a co-write with Bill Maloney of The Vigilantes of Love. It's one of my favorite meditations on grace and a great example of how Buddy could explore faith in ways that were open and relevant to all listeners. Buddy's straight-up solo album era seems to have wrapped up with the release of 2004's Universal United House of Prayer, a churning, dark, soul-haunted collection of songs that allow faith to dance through them like a spirit instead of a bulldozer. The set opens with the Mark Hurd song, Worry Too Much, making sure we know that this is not going to be the kind of gospel album many of us might be used to. And sometimes it feels like bars of steel Where many Christian pop albums served up platitudes and traditional gospel albums focused on deliverance, Miller's sets seemed determined to sit in the tension of this world, fully conscious of the brokenness and destruction and yet aware of the light trying to break through. It's muscular, even angry at times, and possessed of the kind of faith that is more irritated than sublime. This bold, risky approach makes it one of the strongest examples of gospel Americana that has ever been crafted. I've often referred it to young artists who tell me that they feel they can't broach issues of their faith in their music for fear it will cause them to be pigeonholed or not taken seriously by the real world. With this album, Buddy Miller proved that it's all in how you do it. Oh Lord, won't you come to me on my dying bed? Let me from the book of life hear my name be read. Children, listen to me now. These words are not my own. Jesus said, a man is gonna reap what he has sown. And you've got to fall, fall on the rock. You've got to fall, fall on the rock. You better fall, fall on the rock or the rock's gonna fall on you. 
last two entries in Buddy's solo catalog thus far are 2011's guitar-focused collection of duets and cover songs, The Majestic Silver Strings, and his 2012 collaboration with his longtime friend, Jim Lauderdale. The Majestic Silver Strings prominently features the acclaimed guitarist Mark Ribot, though guest vocals by folks like Anne McCrary, Patty Griffin, Leanne Walmack, Sean Colvin, Emmylou, and Julie Miller are exceptional, it's the string work of Buddy and Ribot that is really the star here. Buddy and Jim record is fun too. More solid songs from two longtime friends who have been making music together for decades and now host a radio show together on Sirius XM. The production oozes with Miller's warm and swampy tone and to my ears it's among Lauderdale's best performances. She's a vampire girl. She's a vampire girl. Sometimes she hurts. Sometimes she hurts. It's been almost a decade since the Silver Strings album, and 16 years since Buddy's last true solo album, though his work with Julie is continually album of the year level stuff. If you haven't heard our jukebox meditation on their trio of albums, you can find it on episode 13, by the way. It does seem the cosmos is ready for another straight up Buddy record. Here's hoping. And now, back to the conversation at Dogtown. Oh, come in here now, my buddy, buddy. There was a time when I thought of no other. And we sang our own love's refrain. Our hearts beat as one, and we had our fun. But time changes everything. Probably seems like a long time when you're in it, but... Now, looking back on it, it's, what, 10 years or something between maybe 12 years before you emerge as a solo artist with your, your own record? and you Yeah, kind of, that's probably, probably... It's really not that long when we no. look back on it. The band I, I left when I went to Texas was a, really a good band. Uh, Julie was in it, then she left. When she left, I called my old friend Sean Colvin, who came and took her place. Uh, I had Larry Campbell, who is pretty well known as Levon Helm's band leader and before that he was Dylan's yeah. uh, guitar player and he produces so many people and uh, Lincoln Schleifer was on the bass great session player in New York and uh, Carl Himmel who was a legend to me as a drummer who he was just hanging out in New York I don't know why maybe he burned every bridge here in Nashville and then <laughs> was was bottoming out in New York City but I got him at that time and I he was one of my heroes he played with on Neil Young records I loved and J.J. Kale records and at the same time he was an A-list Nashville country session drummer so that was the band in New York that I left to go to Texas to be in a whatever that thing Christian community yes Christian community that's a and it was and you know I still have fond memories and dear friends from that time yeah come on now child we're gonna go for a ride car wheel Gravel road. Car wheels on the gravel road. 
then you saw enough of the Christian music industry community to know that that wasn't where Buddy Miller was going to fit as an artist. Well, was I really don't know. We, I, didn't, I was never thinking about... I mean, they had us make a record, uh, Julie and me, and I remember going in the studio and them, a room full of great session players in L.A. They brought us out to L.A. Great session players, some of you know whom I worked with later on. But the guy who ran the, we'll call, ministry thing said, you know, when I started telling the guys, no, it's not that chord. It's actually this chord. He said, I, singers don't talk to the musicians. So, <laughs> oh so I got through the day and then I, I had a, a talk with Julie and with the guy and, and thinking, are we going to finish this or not? I don't know if we should. This right. is not right. These are not your songs and these are not the player's songs. These are our songs and we know how they go and we know how they should go. We ended up finishing and it was not what we wanted, um, but I was a learning experience. And, and, and then I felt better about at least seeing Julie's and my vision through musically as best we could after that. Right. You got a sketch. You got an idea. Yeah. cross paths with Mark Hurd and the choir guys in that, that community? Oh, I probably met Derry first, Derry Doherty from the choir, because his wife, Julie, had a deal. She she got a deal with uh, Murr Records. Um, they were really, really nice, nice folks there. And they they heard her demos and they liked what we did. And it was just me, you know, me with a little drum machine or whatever it was and playing guitar to it, because that's all we could afford to do. And they liked the demos and they took her in the studio and she's not really producible. She's like she would tell the musicians what she wanted, stop the session, and it was sort of like making the producer who was working on it with her uncomfortable. So he said, you know, I like your demos. There's a budget to this record. Why don't you take the budget and buy yourself a recorder, uh, a two-inch uh, Studer A80 is what we ended up getting. Nice. You know, your options were limited. There weren't, yeah. uh, there was, this was way before Pro Tools or way before ADAT. So right. we got uh, used, it probably would have been 40 grand new um, studer a80 back a few models you know wasn't current when you punched in there was a little delay there you right, have to like, really be the... careful with your punches and right. so we had that in the tiniest our whole entire apartment was smaller than the size of this room um and it was in a closet or right outside the closet my, my the studio what i'd call studio was in a closet and that's where we recorded and so Marley introduced you to Derry. So Marley was, yeah, working there, and we met Derry through there. Uh, Dan Postema was, was the name of the, of the yeah. guy who's still dear friends of ours, uh, yeah. Dan and Sarah. And Tom Willett, who is oh, a yeah. wonderful guy, was working with Mark. And I think I'd heard Mark's songs. That's what it was. Yeah, I'd heard Mark. When I first um, went to, to Lindale, there was talk about Mark. People would tell me, well, I think you would like Mark. Yeah. I think you like Mark's records and I'd listen to them and think I do like him. He's yeah. he's really smart and has a lot of heart. 
So when I got to meet him, we would hang out some and he'd call me to engineer, um, like on second hand, that record of his, I'd, I'd engineer. And he had a machine that was worse than mine. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think he had an Ampex is what it was. And I remember punching in, you'd have to be careful because when you punched in back then, you have to anticipate it because there's yes. a little gap. The tape is going by at yeah. usually 15 inches per second because you don't want to afford to spend you know tape was right. cheap yeah. back then but it was still a hundred bucks a roll and yeah. you can record at 15 or 30 but at 15 there's a big gap so you want to be careful where you punch um, because you can't pull it back like you can in pro tools it once it's gone it's gone and i screwed up punches all the time and mark would go ah that's where I, that's, that's how i figure out where i'm going to put my percussion i'll put a tambourine <laughs> there so, Bourbon uh, guys call it the angel share, right? Yeah, it's, the, yeah. <laughs> it's the stuff that evaporates. So I learned a lot of uh, of of tricks and good attitude from yeah. Mark Hurd, and he also listened to everything. He was a sweet, sweet guy. Loved his family, and was so smart, and had so much heart in his writing. You guys really, in a lot of ways, kept the Mark Hurd torch going, he, I'm literally by covering his songs, but spiritually, that that spirit of Mark just kind of kept going with what you were doing almost like you kind of kept the intention of what he had started with his his kind of rebooted career with what you were doing i don't well, know that's nice I, of you to say that. that's how it feels to, to me anyway i think you know he was an influence yeah and we were probably running on parallel tracks and it was a dream of mine back then when we were hanging out before he had his heart attack um, and i would tell him this is to put a country band together yeah. with him that, that was what I wanted to do and never quite got around to it. Tell me about your theory of tone. You've really come to define what a lot of us think of as that Americana electric guitar sound and the way you sing. What is your concept of that sound that you keep coming back to? I don't know. I, 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 I think we're all chasing that sound in our head that we can't get to. I know I don't, I've never gotten a sound that I've been really happy with. Oh, wow. Ever. <laughs> um, but I, you know, keep chasing it. The two amps that are set up behind you, I, I, I played through two amps. Um, in stereo I like getting lost in it and I don't like too much distractions from purity of the tone or at least I'd like to start there with just a pure thick tone uh, you know I'm not a great guitar player and certainly not these days I was I was uh, could play fancier um, years ago but I, I, I've kind of realized what I can do and just try to just play the melody at this point and and play around the melodies just knowing the melody and hearing for going for a big thick sound and the string and getting getting lost in it and yeah i'm never happy with the sound or my playing <laughs> and i like to get pushed by players yeah. uh, so these days it's difficult because you can't play with people right you're playing on your own to yeah. a track that someone sent and with julie like because she doesn't feel well a lot of the time because i worked without her in this room for you know a good 15 years she didn't want to work in here so we have um, pocket doors in our bedroom that open up into another room and when you open up now there's a studio oh okay so just on the other side of of the room is a little studio i work in there 
And you have Mark's console sitting right there behind you. I do, yeah. Mark Hurd's uh, wow. Trident B-Range, um, which his uh, his manager, Dan Russell, yeah. you know Dan, I'm oh, sure. Oh, very well, yeah. yeah. He was managing and just cared so much about Mark. So, yeah, I don't remember. I think the console sat in Dan's house or barn or something for right. a while. I don't remember what. And then it went to Tom Willett's school oh, that he right. had. Yeah. And right about the time Tom Willett's school got this beautiful nine-foot, you know, Trident B-range console, everything sort of went digital. Yeah. And everything went small, and you could record a record on an ADAT or, or you know, a, a few laptop. years later, on Pro Tools <laughs> on your on your laptop. Right. right. So nobody used consoles anymore. Um, uh, Mark Hurd's console went down here with the school. When the school came down here, they said, you know, we're not going to use this if you want it. You can have it. It's in good hands. Look over your shoulder and tell me what's coming. Tell me what is the bogey you're so afraid of. can persuade that just for the moment mercy sway look over your shoulder tell me what's coming that brings up mark as an artist and a songwriter was also a producer you are also you've the whole time you've been buddy miller the artist you've also been buddy miller the sideman serving other artists, making their music better. Um, and you've been this incredible producer. A major part of your career has been serving other artists. Was that out of necessity? Was that something that from early on you just really wanted to do? Or was it, was it chasing a job? What do you see the role of a producer being? In an, in well, I love recording. I love playing. I love doing you know, the recordings with Julie when we'd work on her songs or, or our songs. And we were always flat broke. So I was doing every everything that would come along, which wasn't, there wasn't very much in right. the beginning. I was playing guitar for Jim Lauderdale. Uh, we were dear friends. We met in 1980 and we were friends from back then in New York City. And then um, in LA, I got in touch with him and started playing guitar with him. I didn't produce anybody really. I did, made a record for Reverend Dan Smith for oh, the yeah. Choir's record oh, record label man. because what a great record that, that and he what a deep guy. He's one uh, one of those guys that came out of that whole uh, folk scene. He made a few records, I think, on Prestige, um, maybe in the late yeah. '60s. I'm not sure. And Julie uh, heard about him through one of these. We lived in this little group of cottages in South Pasadena. And one of our neighbors um, was uh, Dan Russell's brother and, uh, and his good friend, uh, John Flynn. And John Flynn had a relationship with, with uh, Dan Smith. And so Julie wanted to do something with him. We went up and recorded Reverend Dan Smith up in New York. And 
we recorded like 15 songs on a dat and then overdubbed to them and of course my time's terrible and his time was just you know free and overdubbing <laughs> was a little bit of a trick but it was still a fun record oh yeah and just to hear him yeah um and i, I think producing opportunities to work with people i, I like came along and not going to say no not long after we moved to nashville when the only reason we moved to nashville is because we were broke completely flat broke in la and it was cheaper to live here julie's deal with myrrh was kind of like they didn't ever like her really in the um in the christian uh music world right. too much her vo voice was a little quirky and so we thought well let's move to nashville and just have a home studio and maybe we can i, I didn't know what it'd be i just thought all i'd be doing would be doing you know little vocals for people or demos or something like that and that was all we thought would happen so we moved here and and met some wonderful singer songwriters that and uh, made friends and just opportunities started coming i, I auditioned for emmy lou harris's band and uh, and got the gig somehow and steve earl and yeah and, and then a couple yeah like a year later Amy took a year off, and Steve took Brady Blade and myself um, in his touring band. And Steve's still a dear friend. Mm -hmm. He just lost Gosh, his son. Such a tragedy. Last week, yeah. Terrible. So horrible. I'm tired of laying in bed, listening to the water run. The ceiling's falling in, baby's dress is covered in dust. I don't care what it costs Baby, dust that old thing off It's one more night in Brooklyn Baby, we're getting lost So you you just got woven into the community here yeah. so quickly. And then it would be around the time my first record came out. I think it was right at the same time I started playing with Emmy Lou, And she's so, so gracious and she let me open every show and she said as long you know you can open every show you ever want to with me and i did and she would come out every night and sing with me uh which kind of get, you know validated oh yeah me and she was it would come to all my gigs in town and then she had julie and me be her band for a little while it was just the three of us would mm -hmm. play and emmy was so supportive and people heard the first record of mine and, and julie's and i'd get some production um, offers and I just like working on things so yeah and I'll tell you because I know you don't like talking about yourself but I remember being on a flight with Emmy and her talking about you and the the blessing that you are to her life once your name comes up it, that's all she could talk about was stories about how you and Julie had blessed her oh. um, when I got to meet Robert Plant you know which that's just like rock royalty yeah. I saw Robert Plant at a party. I'm like, okay, I gotta think, what's my what's my in? And I walked up and I said, hey, Robert, you and I have a mutual friend. I said, you're a lucky guy. You got to work with Buddy Miller. And, and that just, he just went off talking about you. And the thing that I've always taken away that, that I would love for especially students listening to this to hear about is your spirit of serving other people and investing in them and how that has come back to then open up doors for you. Well, it just, I th just think we're all in this thing together. You know, if I get an opportunity and it's just, and it just how it happened that I met Robert Plant. He just happened to come to an Emmylou Harris gig in Dublin. And 
I heard he was there. I, I, I must have had an okay night because, um, uh, but I heard he was hanging out. This was in Dublin where they have a pub, you know, in the in the front of the theater. A lot of right. and so he was hanging out there, and I went to meet him afterwards. Just thought because I, I saw his first, you know, Led Zeppelin's first show at the Fillmore from like the third row. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So I went and talked to Robert, and we just talked about music, and he, he and then we all went uh, with Emmy. Emmy Robert and Brady Blade, me and maybe somebody else went to a pub afterwards, a, quiet, a quieter, smaller one, and just had a drink. And he took my number. And years later, I got a call for that. Uh, many years later, for the uh, Robert and Allison tour, and then we worked after that. But yeah, Robert, it's just uh, working with him, working with anybody. I'm, I don't. I just think. I have a mindset of kind of we're all in this we're in this together mm -hmm. and we're creating something new um, and I try to just see through their eyes hear through their ears what they're hearing and you know we can, and I have to have a common ground with somebody that I'm mm -hmm. working with and we sure had a lot of common ground from the blues and and uh, the psychedelic music that I, I, he is so drawn to Sing. think that becoming better listeners of music better discerners in that way can can help us be better people can it help us be better neighbors or uh, just better human beings do you think there's a deeper purpose for music well listening just listening period music can be part of it but I mean you, you, when you say listening first thing I think about is my wife mm -hmm. and listening you know actually listening to things she says and, and taking them and thinking about them instead of just more than hearing but listening and and, and uh, people want to be heard when they're talking when they're when they're telling you something heard and understood and so I try to listen it's hard listening to music I, I you know I recently upgraded my turntable system like so many people did and I drug up all my records so they're all back yeah. there they, half of them were in the basement and I and I try to listen to something um, every day I, on, on vinyl I come in and sit down and really listen and yeah I think that yeah, I just know it's good for, for me to do that and I get something out of it and I hear something different every time I, I listen to a record I try to listen to records but I get you know something out of it mp3 too <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, the, right. it's the music but, but I try to listen to a record um, every day and right now things are so divided and I don't know how people are seeing two completely different realities i don't understand it i try to understand it i try to listen to everything i can i try to listen to you know to both sides to of the i have on my radio uh, in my car you know button on the left and the button on the right for the <laughs> for the different news channels and i um and i try to listen and try to understand and i hear two completely different realities and i don't understand how people can discern and how they they draw that line and why and how they pick 
good and evil, how they can, it's, it's a difficult time. It really is. And I'll be so glad once we're past November. I hope we'll be glad. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll be glad either way. <laughs> really? I mean, because, yeah, I'm just going to tune it out if it's, uh, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be just be glad to get it over with. I'm hoping I'll be glad too. Yeah. Um, but if it goes, if this goes on for another four years, I'm just going to have to turn it off. Julie won't, she didn't allow yeah. the news on after the election. Um, and she was smart, but I had it on in my card every single day. There's like chaos and drama every single yeah. day. And it's, right. um, I don't need that in my life. Go ahead, John. It's the last bridge you will ever have to cross. Jesus waits there on the other side. He saw how you paid the cost. It is interesting, and I like um, uh, that you guys have kind of taken the gloves off a little bit with the new songs that you've been putting out during this. Uh, the The John Lewis song was beautiful. Yeah, uh, I mean, just gorgeous. And the uh, "Get Off of My Money" song that was like that's a and in she your had face. that song probably a half a year ago. Really, had half of it done. Yeah, it's just when this whole thing yeah. got so much worse. Yeah, it's it's horrible, and it's horrible. To me that this administration can't say the words black lives matter i right. mean no matter what they think it's tied you know right you just can't anyway um but yeah julie's been writing uh we do have the news on some and um she's got a whole backlog of songs but this challenge i think i think you're right about listening i think that that's that's probably the main muscle that I think people are letting atrophy is that music's become so cheap. It used to be so, so much more precious when it was, I had to save up my money and then go buy a record and take care of that record and take care of the needle and, and any, or a CD or whatever it was. Yeah. And now it's just, it's perceived as having almost no value. No value, right. Exactly. And, and I think that when we don't take time to become mindful of the value we attach to things people don't listen to they skim through they'll sample a few right. seconds of each song and that may be all they ever hear of it i try so hard to not do that and i've got a radio show too on sirius xm yeah. with my friend jim lauderdale and so and i usually put together the the playlist for that and and and, and i we're not restricted by the genre, even though it's on outlaw country. We can, I, yeah. they let me play whatever I want. And I try really, really hard to listen. I mean, that's the job of a, you know, of a producer, what you call it, or a musician or a husband or anything. Yeah. It's the real job is to listen and find where that magic is when everything explodes and collides. When you're in the studio, what's the difference between this take and the take after it? And the take after that, where's the one where somehow something magical happened in there? Everybody's playing the, the same chords they played on the take before. The drums sound the same, but why is this take different? It's it's being able to listen and getting lost in that song and the feeling that you know the where it taps you um, emotionally for me. And that's you're right, absolutely right about about the news and media and everything in life. It's that way. Dragging this way 
How do you decide now with so many opportunities, so many requests, how do you decide what you're going to say yes to playing wise, production wise, and what you have to say no to? I'm not taking anything anymore. Oh. Um, pretty much. I, well, actually, I don't have any rules. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I'm saying I don't, I'm not taking anything. You're retiring from Yeah, well, I'm, reti- I'm just doing what I want. I'm not calling it retiring. Okay. I'll do, you know, things with friends. Um, if I stay here, but I don't want to go in a, you know, I just don't want to, I have a finite amount of licks in me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an infinite lick machine. So um, I want to, you know, use them here. I, I don't feel like I need to do everything that comes along anymore. And there's probably some peace of mind that comes with just taking that position as opposed to having to make that decision over and over and over again. Yeah. 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 For young people that are just now at the point say you were at in 1980 or 1976 and they're looking at this landscape and this culture and they've got a burden of loving music and having a certain spiritual call on their life and wanting to affect change and wanting to make a difference what what do you got for them you know i would say good luck but i have friends who are young and who are are that way who are great and doing okay i have aaron lee tastian is an example of someone who is so creative, listens to everything, loves music so much, follows his heart, and will be okay through this whole thing. Um, he inspires me. I've brought him over um, from a radio show and I've, I do something every like four to six weeks that I call The Great Unsigned. Because here in Nashville, there's so many singer-songwriters or writers or artists that are really good, but they don't have deals. They're self-released or they don't have publishing deals, but they are really good. Because even Americana is becoming, you know, they're looking for the next big thing that's like the guy at the top of the Americana charts. So um, I want to find the guy, you know, the, the really good stuff that's under stones. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a guy that not many people know about, Dan Reeder. I love his records. They're so different. He lives in Germany, so it's not easy to have him over here. But, you know, there are, there are people in this town that are really good that may or may not surface. But I try to showcase that. And I bring Aaron over to co-host that, that show with me every four to six weeks. He's so excited about all the new music, all the, all the music that people don't know about. So it's, uh, it, there's ways to get through. That's awesome. Are there any? Are, are there plans for these songs that are coming out? Are you going to do another record with this stuff? Are these demos? Yeah. Or are they? What, I what's... think you know Julie's got certainly a record or two worth of songs for her, but we'll probably do them as Buddy and Julie records, yeah. maybe. And then uh, our label, we're we're just really lucky to have uh, New West Records, you know, a record label that's good and believes in us and will put out they say, hey, we love these these songs you've been making, you know, that are um, topical and related to what's going on in the news let's put them out on vinyl Yeah, let's, let's put out, you know whatever you want to call them, lockdown songs so we're going to put out 
um, a record of those and then I'll probably do a record on Julie and I may do a record I don't know well thank you buddy yeah thank you John good to see you I want to thank Buddy from the bottom of my heart for taking so much time with us, especially after having been up all night. And yes, he did get us the songs for that special Spotify mix. We've got more information about that coming up here in a few minutes. As I climb up on my soapbox this time, I'm thinking about a phrase Buddy used during our conversation. Whenever he talked about someone who really knew how to listen to music, who had a wide and deep appreciation of what made music great, he said that person had big ears. Buddy Miller definitely has big ears. He had a mentor when he was young, someone who helped point him toward the good stuff and away from the bad, but then he chose to cultivate those tastes to invest the time to play the scales and learn the chords. He listened deeply first and he heard. And Buddy was a mentor like that for me. He took time to point out artists I should be listening to and encouraged me to pursue a musical path that might not have seemed cool, but he could tell that was where my heart was at. It reminds me of one of my absolute favorite and one of the most challenging sections of scripture. When James, as an old man, writes in a letter to a church that we should be, quote, quick to listen, but slow to speak and slow to become angry because anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires, end quote. When we started this series of conversations and this theme of listening to better music and listening to music better emerged, I don't honestly know if I was really thinking about where it might take us, but sitting in Buddy's studio, right in front of the console that once belonged to Mark Hurd, with all of this amazing music hovering over our heads and in our hearts, and so much anger waiting just outside the door, knocking, knocking, knocking. I'm really sensing that this is all connected. Quick to listen, James says, and slow to speak. But he goes on to challenge us not merely to listen to the word, but to do what it says, which includes looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. Hearing the good, true sound is one thing, but if we don't move with it, what good is it? Buddy's musical expertise flows from both his encyclopedic knowledge of the masters who have gone before him and his own ability to walk in their footsteps with excellence. And then he invests that expertise, and let's be honest, good taste, in the service of others. And that's just, well, that's when this whole thing can explode into something else. That's what love does. In Nashville, we're up to our necks in big-time producers. We've got enough songwriters to fill a football stadium and all three shifts at Starbucks. And as the legendary John Sebastian once wrote, there's 1,352 guitar pickers in Nashville. But the unassuming, soft-spoken Miller won the town over by being all of those things and investing his energy in serving others and doing it with integrity, passion, and grace. If we want to make an impact in the world, we have a role model right here. With big ears and a big heart, there's nothing we can't do. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now.
That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes podcast. If this is your first time joining us on the show, welcome. We've got a good batch of shows on the shelf for you to go back and catch up on and some really special things on the horizon. The show has been growing, but we are not a part of any network, so we rely on your word of mouth and your reviews. Please help us out. Let folks know about the show and let us know what you think by dropping us a line at truetunesmusic at gmail.com. And definitely head to truetunes.com and subscribe to our email list so that you will always be among the first to hear about the latest news, new episodes of the show, special giveaways, and more. It's also a good idea to like our page on Facebook at TrueTunes Now for live events and more. We've also got some sweet swag you can purchase if you want to dress the part, and you can follow me on Twitter at John J. Thompson. You can find a list of all of the music we used on this episode, and boy, was there a lot of it this time, including some really special and rare stuff at TrueTunes.com on the show notes page. We want to thank Buddy Miller, both for his time with us this time and for helping to bring so much of this great music into the world. And thanks also to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for the instrumental mix of Full Circle we use as our theme song. And I want to thank my partner here on the show, Bruce A. Brown, who not only edits the show, he chooses the song clips, finds just the right moments to use, including some really obscure things from his own massive collection and then assembles everything so well. I could not do this show at this level without Bruce and I keep hearing from many of you how much the sound of the show means to you. That's all Bruce, so thank you, sir. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401 Nashville, Tennessee 37206. As with every episode, I hope this conversation has been educational and inspirational. I hope it makes you want to listen more deeply and to pick up something and play, whether that's an instrument of your own or a record. Let's keep digging deep, growing our ears, and chasing that sound. Until next time, this is John J. Thompson saying stay tuned and stay true. was never busy, always on the line. You may hear from heaven almost any time. Tis a royal service, free for one and all. When you get in trouble, give this royal line a call. Telephone to glory, oh what joy divine. I can feel the current moving on the line. Built by God the Father for His blessed own. When you get in trouble, call Jesus on the royal telephone.